What's up, everybody? How you doing? My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to E3, and I want to ask you to do something for me uh, right off the bat. If you have uh, your fridge fold, I want you to put it away. Um, I want to not look at it just yet, um, particularly the scripture, and uh, that'll become apparent why. Uh, the second thing I want to let you know about is if you don't know, uh, E3 assigns ratings to its gatherings, like movie ratings. And if you don't know, our official rating for any Sunday gathering is PG-13, which means that anything that you would see in a PG-13 movie, you might encounter on a Sunday morning. Uh, I say that because this morning, parents, I will be mentioning the existence of something called sex. So if you have kids in the room still, if they haven't gone to J-High and you're uncomfortable with that, uh, go sit down and have a lot of coffee for the next 30 minutes and, and we'll be back with you after that. Um, I like when movies begin with uh, an opening scene that ends up being the end of the movie. Anybody ever notice a movie like this where uh, the movie opens up and you are instantly thrown into some kind of chaos. You really don't know what's going on. Something's going on. And then what you realize is that you're watching the actual end of the movie and then the rest of the movie goes back and then tells you how you got to this point. So Saving Private Ryan opens in a cemetery. You don't know what's going on and then it backs up, tells you why uh, this man is so moved at this grave. Pulp Fiction begins this way. I've been watching the movie series, not the movie, but the series Fargo. Fargo does this a lot where it'll jump forwards and backwards in time, and it always kind of keeps you on edge, you know? You open, the movie opens up, and you may not understand why you're seeing what you're seeing and why it matters, but then as you watch the movie, you begin to understand that there's a reason and a journey that brings you to this point. And the reason I tell you this is because I wanna tell you a story, and I wanna walk through a story from the Old Testament this morning, but I wanna walk through it backwards, okay? And that's why I had you turn your, script, your, your fridge fold over because there's a scripture that I just don't wanna quite encounter yet. And in, in particular, we're gonna be looking at the book of 2 Samuel. So if you do have your Bible or if you wanna grab one, there's a couple uh, sitting around. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And we're gonna be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now the scripture will be up there on the screen. So we're gonna start with an opening scene. And in particular, we're gonna be looking at verses 22 through 24. So hear this text and read this text. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. So the scene opens on this story, on this movie we're telling, and it involves some kind of military action, right? There's a messenger who goes to David, the king, and this is King David, right? This is the rock star of the Old Testament. If you don't know who King David is, he is the central figure of the monarchy in the Old Testament. He is the king that every other king is measured against. In fact, Jesus is measured against him. You might actually say that, that King David is measured against Jesus. But David is this dashing character, magnetic leader, Strong personality. 
does amazing things. This is David and Goliath, that David, right? Great story. So this is the king. And evidently there's this guy, a soldier named Uriah the Hittite that's been killed. And a messenger has come back to David to tell him that. Now, Uriah, we don't know anything about Uriah except his name and his nationality. But his nationality is kind of interesting because a Hittite is not a Jewish person. And evidently the text wants us to take note of that. Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, a non-Jewish person fighting a battle for a Jewish king. So that's the scene. That's what, that's what the movie opens up on, a dead soldier, all right? And then we're gonna just go back and see where this journey takes us. How did we get to this scene? So we're gonna back up a little bit and look at verses 18 through 21. We're gonna learn about a new character in this story. Then Joab sent a battle report to David, and he told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed also. Okay, so we, in, we learn about a new character, a guy named Joab. Joab is David's general. He is his go-to guy. Joab and David's story gets intertwined in 2 Samuel an awful lot. And we see in this section of the scripture that Joab is the guy that sends the messenger back to David. But what's interesting is that Joab, again, draws our attention to the dead guy. Tell the king Uriah the Hittite is dead. So if you're just watching this movie, you're like, okay, there's something about Uriah that is central to this story. There's something about Uriah and David that's central to this story. So moving on backwards in the story, looking at verse 16 and 17, the story begins to take a turn. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Now the rest of the soldiers are nameless. But again, the focus on Uriah. And the story starts to turn because we realize that Uriah doesn't just die in battle. Uriah is positioned by his general in the most dangerous spot in the fighting. And so there's something, if you were watching this in a movie, you would begin to wonder, well, what's going on in this? Is, is Joab a bad general? Is Uriah the super, uh, is he like a, you know, a special ops guy that they wanted him close to the wall? What's going on? Something might begin to smell a little funny in this story. Verses 14 and 15. So the next morning, David, the king, wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah, the Hittite, to deliver. And the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back 
so that he will be killed. And instantly, what was a military epic, a Saving Private Ryan type of situation, becomes a murder mystery. Because Joab doesn't just accidentally station Uriah near the wall. Joab, David's go-to general, is told by his king, put him where the battle is fiercest and then draw back so that he can be what? Killed. So this becomes political intrigue, murder mystery. And so you start to wonder, well, what is it about Uriah the Hittite? Which I love the irony, right? Uriah the Hittite fighting in a Jewish army for a Jewish general, for a Jewish king, but he's not Jewish, and his Jewish king sends him to die. You might wonder, what is it about Uriah that has David kill him? Maybe Uriah has rebelled, right? Maybe Uriah is, is uh, somehow inciting something against the king. And maybe David just has to deal with Uriah in this way because Uriah is plotting something against the kingdom. Who knows? But the story continues to unfold, looking at uh, verse 12 and 13. And by the way, you notice who carries the instruction for Uriah's death, Uriah. So not only does David have it out for Uriah, there's something almost twisted and almost a little, you might say perverted in that he has the man he's going to kill carry the own, his own instructions for his death. So this isn't just get rid of Uriah, this is almost malicious on David's part. And remember, David's the rock star, right? David's the king. So verse 12 and 13. Let's find out what's going on between David and Uriah. Well, stay here today, David told him. He's talking to Uriah, actually. And tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife again Uriah slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So where you might be expecting some justification for Uriah's murder, what you find here is actually David and Uriah are hanging out, eating dinner, drinking wine. David gets Uriah drunk. There's no, there's no evidence that Uriah is doing anything to David. They're sharing a meal, which in this culture is one of the most intimate and safe things you can do for a person. But Uriah, it says, David uh, is trying to get Uriah to go home to his wife. And it says, again, Uriah doesn't do it. He stays and sleeps with the palace guard. So this begins to plant the seeds of questions in our minds of what is going on between David and Uriah. So we're gonna look at a larger block of scripture now that's going to unfold a little bit more. So starting in verse uh, six, we look at this. Then David sent word to Joab, his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David 
When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So the story gets richer and deeper and a little bit more murky because David is the one who has sent to Joab and said, bring Uriah the Hittite to me. They're out campaigning on, on, a, on, a, on a military campaign against these people called the Ammonites. And David's like, send Uriah to me. And then he gets there and he's like, you know what? There's evidently nothing between us, Uriah, that's bad. In fact, let me give you gifts. Let me send you home to your wife who has missed you. Go home to her, Uriah. Be with her. And Uriah does not do it. He stays and sleeps with the palace guard. And David is like, why won't you go home? And then again, you see the irony, the non-Jewish Jewish Uriah fighting a non-Jewish battle for a not, for a, fighting in a Jewish army for a Jewish king who wants to have him murdered, and the non-Jewish guy is like, I couldn't do this because the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the Ten Commandments are, the Ark's out there in the field. The Jewish armies are in the field. Joab is in the field. How can I be comfortable? And it's ironic that this non-Jewish guy is, is actually committed to the Jewish cause while his Jewish king is evidently conspiring to have him killed. So David wants Uriah to go sleep with his wife. Why? And we encounter this next block of scripture and we find out exactly what's going on. Verse two. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of who? Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So why is David so eager to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife? Because he already has slept with Uriah's wife and she's pregnant. And David is thinking, hey, if I can get Uriah to get together with his wife, nine months later, the baby comes out. Hey, it kind of looks like the king, but you know what? Things happen, coincidences happen. That's what's driving David. He doesn't just have his soldier, his loyal non-Jewish soldier's best interests at heart. Go home and be with your wife. 
David has done something and he's trying to cover it up. And when Uriah won't comply because of his commitment and his loyalty to his king, what does his king do? Has him murdered. That's what the story is. And as Dan said, we're talking about lust today. And as I read this story, I read a story of lust. I read a story of a king who is looking out over his city and sees a woman that he wants. Mind you, he already has a wife, right? But he sees something he wants and he says, get it for me. And I like to think, you know, this story strikes me because I think sometimes we think that the 21st century or the 20th century has a monopoly on lust, right? We live in a highly sexualized society. Companies use sex to sell everything from website domains to shaving cream to whatever, cars. And we like to think that somehow lust and sex is a new story. But actually, when you read a Bible, when you read this, you realize that lust and sex is the oldest story. There's nothing new about lust. It affected people thousands and thousands of years ago, and it affects us today. And I wanna let you know that uh, that's actually interesting because I think as people of faith, the culture sometimes looks at us and we go, you know what, God hates sex. You know, all, the whole thing about being a Christian is about like, you know, God wants you to be prudish. He's prudish. He doesn't like sex. Nothing could be further from the truth. God loves sex. He invented sex, in case you didn't know. As I was studying for this, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is how many euphemisms there are for sex in the Old Testament. Some of them, the little asterisks that sometimes if you have a Bible or have a little asterisk, you look down at the, uh, at the bottom. Some of those are indicated where like such and such could be a euphemism for going to sleep with your wife. And you really wouldn't, you have no idea how many there are. In the Old Testament, sometimes if you read a passage that says they were out there laughing together, you get into the Hebrew and they're like, well, that could mean they were having sex. And you're like, it's all over the place. It's in this passage. We don't have time to go into them right now. But there's all these little slangs and slogans that are in the Old Testament that constant, people are having sex all over the place in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, you know, that's, that's full of all the sex that God doesn't like because, you know, let's be honest, there is sex that God doesn't like. What strikes me is that, is that if it's in Leviticus as something you shouldn't do, that means people were doing it. So if you ever, we're not gonna read Leviticus 18 because it's just bizarre, some of it is. But you're like, if you're, if you're reading it and God's like, don't have that kind of sex, you're like, we were really having that kind of sex back then. Sex is all over the Bible. Lust is, is all woven through um, the, the, the darkest parts of our story. And I wanna kind of take a, take a look at what lust is. And the way we wanna do that is I wanna contrast it with the way the Bible talks about love, okay? Because in the Bible, you can't, uh, you can't really separate the two. And I'll say it this way, that uh, we have one word for love, you know, that covers an awful lot of things. The Bible's not like that. The Bible has multiple words for love. 
multiple words for love that, that brings out different nuances of love. So if you're reading the New Testament, there are three main words that the Greek, New Test, that the Greek uses for love. And those words are philos, agape, and eros. Anybody ever heard of any of these words? Okay, philos is brotherly love. It's where the city of Philadelphia gets its name. Philadelphia. Philos is this brotherly, affectionate love that you would find in the best family or in the best friendships. Agape love takes that to a deeper level. Agape love in the New Testament is the way God talks about his love for us and the way Jesus talks about our love for God. It is committed. It is longstanding. It is faithful. It stands beside each other. Friendships can have agape love. It stands beside each other when things get tough. It's loyal. And then finally, eros is the sexual part of love. Now, we're dealing with the Old Testament. So it's interesting the way Hebrew talks about love. There are actually more words in Hebrew that can mean love. I think that's where all the euphemisms come from. Uh, in Hebrew, the word raya kind of equates with the word philos. It is a, that family, brotherly love. The word uh, ahava or hesed corresponds roughly with agape. Hesed specifically is, a, is an amazing word in the New Testament. That's what God's love is for his people. Faithful love that does not desert. When we stray, God's hesed love stays with us. Ahava is the same thing. And then lastly, it was just a fun word. Dod is the word that might correspond to eros. It is the sexual part of love. Sometimes its definition means carousing. Okay, it's when you're up to no good, right? It's when you're naked, not naked. <laughs> In a sense, if you were looking to start defining lust, I would say that lust happens when you separate eros and dod from these other loves. When you rip away eros from commitment, from loyalty, from faithfulness, from seeking the good of another person, when you rip it away from hesed love and raya love, and it's just physical. That's what lust is. And I was thinking about a definition for love, so, lust. So if you wanna know how I would define lust, this is what I came up with, that it separates sex from connection and commitment and turns human beings into tools for another's pleasure. Because I think it's pretty obvious from the story that David has no desire to be Bathsheba's raya friend or hesed partner. He says, what? I see a beautiful woman. Bring her to me. That's what lust is. It dehumanizes people. It's when you say, I don't know, I don't care about the commitment, I don't care about the human being. What I want is I want my pleasure and I want it now. Now this is interesting to me because uh, if you really take a look sometimes at the seven deadly sins, you know what the seven deadly sins are? They are simply really, really good desires that get twisted. 
And make no mistake, we are, we are created for community. We are created for connection with each other, right? Loyal love, faithful love, deep friendship. Is that not something that we value? But what lust does is it takes that intense desire for connection that we have and it turns it into something where we just use human beings to get what we want. Let me show you guys a picture. Anybody know uh, what this chemical uh, symbol is or chemical, I don't even know what you call this. This is how chemical uh, chemistry is. Anybody know what that is? All right, let's try another version of it. Anybody know what this is? Nope, not DNA. How about this? No, no chemistry majors here. You know what this is? This is, the, this is nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is, is funny. Uh, it was invented in the late 1800s. It was first used as a way to blow things up, right? More powerful than dynamite. It's got, it's got an interesting story because when they were developing, so this, chem, this compound is so unstable. Factories constantly blowing it up. Um, people who are transporting it to use it on a, on a railroad site or something, constantly blowing up, people dying all over the place. It's explosive, and it destroys things. But you know what else nitroglycerin does? If you ingest it, it's used to heal our bodies for heart disease, for hypertension. Now, don't ask me how these guys, like, figure out, hey, this thing blows people up. Why don't you, like, drink some of it? I don't know who that guy was. It's actually interesting because uh, one of the guys in Germany who uh, he manufactured this stuff and his factories blew up and he lost people. He actually ended up having a heart condition and having to use this stuff in the late, late 1800s. And he actually commented, he's like, I can't believe the irony of this thing that is so destructive, but when I ingest it, it heals me. It makes my body work right. This is what love and lust is like. It's like nitroglycerin. When love is attached to philos and agape and raya and ahava and hesed, it is a part of what it means to be fully human. It's the best of us. You separate that into just lust and physical desire and it blows stuff up. There's one more verse in this, in this chapter. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So this whole story starts with a seemingly innocent act. If you know David's story at all, you know that David is active and energetic. He slays Goliath. Then he's told that he's actually the king, even though there's already a king, King Saul. David fights battle after battle after battle. Saul 
kind of goes off the rails and decides that he wants to kill David. David stays and serves Saul in the midst of threats to his life. He actually has opportunities to kill Saul and his character is so strong that he refrains from killing his king even though that king wants to kill him. And he says, I would never kill the Lord's anointed. Most scholars think that uh, 2 Samuel 11 is the turning point of David's story where you go from a man who is active, fighting battles out in the field with his army, refusing to kill a king who wants to murder him. And he goes to a guy who sits in his palace, lets other people fight his battles for him, and then murders a loyal soldier. And if you read the rest of David's story, you see that Things get rocky for David after 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, Bathsheba has this baby and that baby grows up to be a, 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 not a thorn in David's side, but, but uh, things happen between him and this son. And David's story then becomes uh, much more up and down. It's a different guy. His life, I want to suggest you, gets to a degree blown up by lust because he sees something that he wants and he says, bring her to me. I want her. You know, lust is very, very connected to gluttony and pride. Another way to think about lust is, uh, is the saying, I want what I want when I want it. And I like the word it at the end of it. Because again, it's dehumanizing. It's about pleasure. And this isn't really, and I want to be clear, this isn't about a, uh, just a man thing, right? This is a human condition. So I want to end with, with four thoughts about this. First thought is simply this. Uh, lust is not just a physical thing. A lot of us think, you know what, it's just, it's just a physical act. Whether it's between a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or whether it's with yourself, or whether it's with someone else. You know what, lust is just a physical thing. Guess what? Our bodies don't work that way. We are what we would call psychosomatic creatures. Meaning that what we do with our bodies affects our mind and our spirit, and vice versa. It is biological. If you're interested in this, uh, I gave a talk back in June, I think the date was June 14th, that goes into the physical things that happen during sex that bind us to people. And when you divorce Eros and you divorce Dodd from Agape and Hesed and Raya, you are bonding maybe to people that you don't really need to be bonded to and that erodes your soul. And I wanna to suggest to you that how, how does David, the rock star, the model king, go from being a guy that will not murder, will not kill a guy who's trying to murder him to murdering a loyal soldier? It's because lust is not just physical. It affects your spirit, your mind. Second thought I would have for you, uh, Lust does not affect God's love for you. 
but it does affect your journey of transformation. And I wanna be crystal clear here. We are all human. And if you're human, God loves you. And if you are stuck with, uh, stuck in some cycle of lust, if you have done things that you wish you could undo, guess what? God still loves you. Because you can look at David's story. Does it get rocky? Are there consequences for David's action? Yes. Does God say, David, you're no longer the king? No. David writes some of the most beautiful prayers and poetry in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms. His relationship with God is so intense that the Bible calls David, maybe you've heard this, a man after God's own heart. And yet that man fell. And if you're struggling with lust, you need to know that God loves you. He doesn't love you any less because of what you've done or haven't done. But as the pre-message video says, this is about throwing off the stuff that threatens to entangle us. This is about becoming fully human the way God wants us to be human. So stop dabbling in this stuff because it will blow you up like nitroglycerin. Third thought, uh, what does getting help look like? Getting help uh, looks like openness, accountability, and surrender. When we started this series, I said that every seven deadly sin has a traditional virtue that's associated with it as a weapon against that sin. Uh, the, the virtue that's associated with fighting lust is the virtue of chastity. Talk about a word that we don't hear in the 21st century, chastity. And chastity might evoke to your mind, you know, like, okay, well, like, these are all the rules. These are the physical things I cannot do. These are the don'ts. But chastity, as anything spiritual, is, is much, much more than the don'ts. Chastity is much more of like, how close can I get? How, can I, how close can I get to this line before I fall off? Chastity is about what type of person you wanna be. And if you are single, you need to take Eros and Dodd maybe off the table. Because chastity is about agape and philos and raya. It's about becoming a person who can be connected to other people on a deep, deep level. Accountability, just sitting down with your growth group or with a pastor or with someone going like, I gotta tell you what's going on in my life. Lust more than anything else, man. It gets us in secrecy, in shame, and that is a, that is a stew that you do not want to cook. And the last thing is a really just surrender because it's no fun to admit that you struggle with stuff like this. And some of us have so much pride that we're like, I don't want people to know what I've done at 3 a.m. I don't want people to know what I've done in the club. I don't want people to know that this is a struggle for me. And what we need to do is just set aside our pride and go, I surrender. This is bigger than me. You know? And without dwelling on it too much, you know, some of us, our story is such that we've gotten our lives into a situation where we can't stop. 
And we've woken up morning after morning saying, I won't go there again. And then the next night, we're right back there. And you need to know that there are recovery programs, there are counselors, there is hope. But you have to surrender first. And you have to say, I'm not willing to live like this anymore. Because dabbling with explosives is not worth it. It is killing you inside. And relatedly, I wanna end like this. And sorry, this has been a little bit of a heavy message, but this is our story. And this is how serious this stuff is. This is why I take every one of the seven deadly sins very, very seriously. I know my God loves me, but I'm not willing to live half a life. I want all the life that God has for me. I wanna be as fully human, capable of loving my wife, capable of loving my friends, capable of doing my ministry. I want all of that. And anything that gets in my way, I wanna have the strength to say, God, I don't want anything as much as I want you. And I want wholeness. There's There's a phrase in the Old Testament that I wanna leave you with because lust is destructive. And um, it comes out of the, the prophet Joel because what I wanna leave you here, as heavy as this can be, I want you to know that there is hope. I wanna know that there's hope. God is a strong God and he is a loving God. And the church, your brothers and sisters, the people in this room, even though you think they're crazy, They are strong enough to carry you through this stuff. This does not have to be the way your story ends. Joel uh, wrote his book during during a season where there was plagues of locusts coming upon God's people. And locusts would come in and they would just eat everything, decimate everything. And I think if you've known anybody that struggle with, struggles with lust, you would know that this is what lust can look like. When it blows up, it looks like it takes everything with it. Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? Anybody ever seen anybody's life implode because of lust? And it looks like everything is burned down. And this one little statement that, Joel, that God writes through the prophet Joel, I wanna leave you with it. Because God says, that eventually, he says, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. If you have struggled with this, if you are in it, let me tell you, things can look pretty dark and you may think that everything is burned up. But God is a God of hope. And if you are willing to walk a walk of openness, accountability, surrender, God will give you back the years that you've lost to this. David ends up as a man after God's own heart. Not as the guy that slept with Bathsheba. Not as the murderer of Uriah. I think that's really, really encouraging. And you don't have to be known by this either. We don't have to be known by this. And that's good news. Let's stand up for closing prayer. 